Welcome to Marxist Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider or visit www.socialist.net. So I don't know how many of you follow the news um, about Northern Ireland, but you might have seen it recently about the, uh, the recent uh, legalisation of abortion in Northern Ireland um, and the passage into law of, um, of uh, equal marriage. Um, of course you can applaud that. But uh, it's on a sour note, basically, um, that the Stormont Assembly um, has now been suspended for over a thousand days. So it's setting a world record at this point or being a region of a country with, uh, with no uh, functioning government, essentially. Um, understandably, a lot of people are very frustrated about this. Um, and when it comes to the Stormont Assembly, there's a feeling amongst like, a lot of people, especially young people in Northern Ireland, that they, uh, they, they've never really escaped Troubles politics, that you know, the same old faces, the DUP, Sinn Féin and so on, uh, who've caused the Assembly to collapse, are kind of responsible for the, all of this. Um, and, um, uh, it's, in some sense, that's very true. You know, the sectarian divide in Northern Ireland uh, is institutionalised in the Stormont Assembly, um, and people are kind of losing all faith in the system, especially after this uh, this uh, suspension of the Assembly. Um, and the only justification it kind of maintains is that there's peace now in Northern Ireland after decades of uh, violence, which is, of course, what we're talking about tonight. So uh, the troubles in Northern Ireland, kind of a. a, a I'm not sure who coined the term. It doesn't really encapsulate the scale of violence, of chaos and disorder that really happened in Northern Ireland at the time, or the significance of many of the events. But uh, it's kind of just known uh, familiarly, obviously, as the Troubles. When in reality, it was more like a, uh, almost like a civil war, really, in Northern Ireland. Anyway, um, but the starting point, what's often credited as the starting point of the Troubles, um, is when British troops were sent into Northern Ireland in 1969. So. Um, in August 1969 was the, the beginning of the, uh, the longest military operation in British history, which was Operation Banner, which ran from 1969 until 2007. So it was only 2007, relatively recently, that the British military officially decided that the troubles were over. Um, but into a bit of the background, essentially. So the day, the exact day, is often uh, the, 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 the troubles began, I suppose. Um, is often credited as the 5th of October 1968. So what happened then? So on the 5th of October 1968, um, a civil rights march was planned through Derry um, and uh, was banned by the police. Um, and the Civil Rights Association that called the march, uh, it officially uh, canceled it. Uh, but nonetheless, um, people turned up for it. Um, so the Civil Rights Association and the Civil Rights Movement itself um, was a response, obviously, to the, uh, the oppression and the discrimination that many people, uh, especially Catholics in Northern Ireland, felt. Um, so it was based on campaigns against housing discrimination. So um, Catholics in Northern Ireland were not allocated um, social housing. Uh, they often lived in more kind of squalid conditions um, in places like Derry and, uh, and uh, some places in Belfast and West Belfast. Um, people lived in, you know, uh, this is like the 1960s, and people lived in like pre-First World War conditions with no indoor toilets, no running water, things like that. Um, Civil Rights Association was also campaigning for like one, mem one man, one vote. 
So in Northern Ireland, the electoral system was still largely based on property qualifications. So again, like pre-First World War uh, kind of conditions. Um, so property owners and small business owners and so on would have like up to 30 votes at elections. Whereas um, uh, kind of ordinary citizens, um, usually poorer citizens, but, you know, uh, disproportionately Catholic, of course, um, would have no vote whatsoever. Um, as well as campaigning against things like the Special Powers Act, which was a, uh, a kind of ruthless, uh, repressive kind of piece of legislation passed by the Northern Irish Parliament, um, which was uh, envied around the world, in fact, by, uh, by repressive colonial regimes. Uh, South Africa, in particular, they said they envied the, the Special Powers Act. Um, so the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association, they, they were campaigning against us. But like I said, the 5th of October uh, 1968, uh, March, was prohibited uh, and somewhat cancelled. But yet people turned up for it anyway. Um, and it was basically under the leadership of the, uh, the Derry uh, Labour Party and the Derry Young Socialists um, that up to 500 people, they did turn up to have the demonstration anyway. Um, and they were ruthlessly attacked by the RUC, Royal Ulster Constabulary, so the Northern Irish Police Force at the time, um, and the Auxiliary Force, the infamous uh, B-Specials. So an auxiliary force of the police that were uh, recruited normally from uh, uh, Protestant backgrounds and were particularly kind of ruthless in dealing with uh, uh, strikes and demonstrations and things like that. Um, but uh, these B-Specials and, and images of this, uh, this attack was beamed upon uh, television screens um, all around Ireland. People were understandably horrified and shocked that um, you know, a peaceful demonstration of 500 largely young people um, was being treated uh, uh, so callously and, and so violently and that there were sectarian taunts from the police and from the B-specials and so on. Um, and uh, this kind of ballooned the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association, which, like I said, was um, based itself, was kind of inspired in a large part by, uh, for example, the civil rights struggle in the United States. Um, and by, uh, also by what was going on in, in France at the time, so the kind of the big demonstrations and so on, as well as the US kind of anti-war movement. Um, and uh, it was around this time that it really became like a mass movement. You know, there were local civil rights association kind of chapters and, and branches set up all across Northern Ireland. Um, there was a huge kind of outpouring of public support for them. Um, so on the 16th of November, so uh, a few weeks later really, um, they planned another march through Derry. Uh, which was again attacked by the police um, with particular kind of brutality. Um, it led to kind of massive riots in the, uh, the areas of Derry where the, uh, the, the march took place. Um, you know, petrol bombs being rained down on police, uh, bricks and stones being thrown. Um, and uh, even in some areas, particularly uh, the bog side of Derry, uh, which is a um, uh, majority kind of Catholic area, a very, very poor area of, uh, of Derry, um, sort of uh, self-defence kind of groups began to emerge as well, such was the, the scale of the, kind of the violence, the attacks in these communities. Um, um, and such was the violence and the kind of outpouring of public support for the, uh, the civil rights demonstrators um, that uh, they managed to uh, agree kind of a truce. And the Northern Irish government at the time, uh, under O'Neill, Terence O'Neill, Captain Terence O'Neill, he preferred to be called because he used to be a British Army captain, um, uh, they kind of announced that they were going to make they were going to make some concessions, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, they were willing to kind of make these concessions at this time, really. Um, because although Northern Ireland, I mean, the background to the Northern Irish state, really. So no Terence O'Neill, um, Northern Irish Prime Minister. Um, so Northern Ireland had, a, it was still called the Parliament, the Assembly. They had a Prime Minister. Um, and obviously Northern Ireland was formed um, in 1922. 
after the uh, the partition of Ireland, so the British colonial partition of Ireland. So after the uh, the, the Irish War of Independence, the Irish Anglo-Irish War in uh, 1920 to 21-22, um, which ended uh, in roughly sort of a military stalemate, but an offer from the British uh, the sort of the British side to the uh, to the Irish Republican Army, the Republican side at the time, to uh, to sort of call a truce and sort of end it all, have a peace treaty, um, and to grant sort of limited concessions. So it led to the formation of the Irish Free State, which is an independent state in the south, forming the majority of Ireland, but also the partition of Ireland. So the uh, six north northeastern uh, counties of, uh, of of Ireland would become the Northern Irish states. This was the majority Protestant areas, um, and indeed it was. Uh, it was deliberately kind of gerrymandered so they would have a Protestant majority. So um, this kind of these kind of sort of six counties of, of, of Ireland, um, you know, they were really sort of the, it was kind of the smallest kind of a, a polity that could be sort of pulled together. There where there would be a, a Protestant majority uh, there, um, and it was a state characterised by extreme discrimination of Catholics. Um, and um, the uh, the kind of dominance of the kind of Protestant half of the of the, uh, of the state, um, but uh, by the 1960s. So although the reason I mean that this uh, partition was kind of enforced on Ireland, obviously, was out of pure kind of British uh, imperial interests. Um, sectarianism had been used in Ireland for for decades, for generations, uh, hundreds of years, to sort of divide the working class and divide the struggle for Irish independence. Um, but by the 1960s, uh, this sectarianism of the ruling class had kind of whipped up, um, was uh, becoming a bit of a drag in the border. The economic interests that Britain had in, in the north of Ireland um, were, uh, were starting to kind of subside to the economic interests they had uh, in the south even. Um, there was more kind of uh, foreign investment in the south. Um, there was more, uh, more GDP and more profit being produced essentially by British companies uh, or, or companies operating in the south of Ireland, owned by, Brit by British uh, owners than uh, Northern Ireland was. Northern Ireland was becoming a kind of drain on the purse strings of the British uh, Treasury and so on. Um, so they moved towards this position of kind of more sort of concessions. So like O'Neill was seen as kind of a liberal uh, uh, you know, reformer almost, not quite by Catholics of course, but um, uh, you know, in, in his own kind of context. Um, and uh, so he kind of was going to offer these concessions uh, to the Civil Rights Association, um, which he was kind of forced to renege on because obviously he uh, was also facing opposition from the kind of the grassroots of extreme kind of Protestant reaction, um, which was the, um, uh, you know, kind of the sort of loyalist group, so people like Ian Paisley and so on. Um, but anyway, this, um, uh, this truce didn't last very long, and a more kind of radical group within the Civil Rights Association uh, called People's Democracy, which is kind of formed by students at Queen's University, um, they, uh, they planned a, a civil rights march um, from Belfast to Derry, again inspired by the civil rights marches in uh, the United States, the Selma-Montgomery march, where black civil rights activists marched from Selma uh, to Montgomery in Alabama. Um, and it was scheduled to arrive in, uh, in, um, uh, in Derry in early February uh, 1969. And basically all along the route, it started out with a very small group of people, eventually swelled to about 400 marchers. All along the route, they were attacked um, by uh, the REC, by police, by peace specials, as well as by kind of loyalist and uh, uh, kind of reactionary sort of gangs, essentially, who would uh, obviously pelt them with stones and so on, uh, taunt them with uh, sectarian chanting and things like that. And also this uh, provoked a, a kind of uh, a reaction from a lot of uh, you know, communities in Derry. So by the time that they did arrive, there was almost a kind of insurrectionary mood being sort of prepared in Derry. Um, 
And it was when they did arrive that there was the, uh, um, the again, like I said, kind of the local kind of groups would sort of take over these areas. There was the establishment of these kind of no-go areas in parts of Derry, you know, where the police couldn't go into because rioters had sort of taken over, taken control, and the police were, where it wasn't safe enough for them to go in. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's the PDA um, in Bogside. But over 1969, this uh, peaceful kind of civil rights um, march, there's a series of kind of uh, riots and so on all throughout the kind of country. Um, every time they try and march, the REC have quite a deliberate tactic because the Civil Rights Association, um, originally it wasn't just a purely kind of Catholic organization. It had, it had cross-community appeal and was kind of a, um, intended, it had a kind of an appeal to kind of both, both Catholic and Protestant uh, working class communities. Um, uh, because, as, you know, although the Protestant uh, sort of half of the population were uh, dominant over the other half, they um, nonetheless had, uh, uh, there was extreme kind of poverty amongst uh, Catholics, or amongst uh, Protestants, sorry, um, particularly in places of Belfast, again, like along the Shanko Road and places like that, um, people lived in sort of squalid conditions, really. Um, but uh, towards, throughout 1969, the REC would force these kind of demonstrations whenever they gathered, um, through you know, when they would always constantly be kind of attacked by the police and they would be uh, sort of forced into Catholic areas. The only places that the marchers could go for sort of self-defense, where they could be defended uh, essentially by, by rioters and so on. Um, and uh, that was the, uh, and so, so there's this kind of changing perception of the, of the Civil Rights Association throughout, the, throughout um, 1969, which is, is kind of very important. Um, and then the movement kind of knew that uh, this violence and these kind of riots they would culminate in, in August of 1969. Um, so when, uh, on the 12th of August, um, the uh, Derry uh, Apprentice Boys, which is kind of a loyalist, uh, you know, Christian brotherhood, they would call themselves, would uh, march through Derry. These kind of orange marches um, obviously were very uh, sort of triumphalist. Um, you know, they sang songs about kind of historic kind of massacres of Catholics in Ireland um, and the kind of uh, oppression of, kind of, uh, of Ireland. Um, and uh, they, uh, they, they were going to march through Derry. Um, and they knew this would provoke, the police and everyone knew this would provoke a reaction from the local community and uh, that there would be kind of riots and so on. Um, but uh, the scale at which it happens again was uh, kind of unprecedented at the time. So from the 12th to the 14th of August was the infamous uh, Battle of the Bogside. So uh, rioters kind of took over the, the Bogside area. Um, the, uh, the gable wall was uh, painted with um, uh, the kind of famous Free Derry slogan. So, this was kind of declared a kind of a, you know, almost like an autonomous kind of space where um, the REC and so on were not welcome. Um, and, uh, the, uh, and it was true, they, they really couldn't uh, go into these areas. But there were riots all across Northern Ireland at this time um, in August um, of 19, uh, 1969. Um, uh, as well as kind of uh, what became kind of world famous uh, atrocities as well. Um, Bombay Street in Belfast, um, a whole row of houses where Catholics lived, um, was burned out, and people were forced to live in, uh, in school gymnasiums and so on. And uh, many people even just kind of felt they needed to flee the flee the city completely. There was there was this feeling amongst the Catholic community that there was going to be uh, an unprecedented uh, level of sectarian violence against them and uh, a pogrom, essentially, a massacre of people. Um, and indeed, it very nearly got to that point. Um, under this kind of pressure, the the Labour government at the time. Uh, sent, dispatched soldiers to Northern Ireland. So this is the beginning, as I mentioned, of Operation Banner. So soldiers were sent to Northern Ireland um, with the, 
the supposed kind of remit of protecting these Catholic communities from these uh, kind of PZI gangs and from these this, uh, this threatened kind of pogrom, this threatened uh, um, uh, motivated kind of attack. Um, and initially, the troops um, they were uh, they were welcomed really by um, the uh, by the majority of the population. They were see, it was seen as um, that uh, they had beaten the REC, that they had beaten the PZIites, and by uh, and the kind of loyalist gangs. Um, and the troops kind of were genuinely there to sort of protect them. It was a sign that they were kind of winning. Um, even some elements of the IRA, so the IRA went through a very important kind of period at this time, which I'll talk about a little bit. But even some elements of the IRA were saying this, said, you know, the Britain sending troops in is, uh, is proof that we've beaten the Northern Irish states, that uh, O'Neill and the Ulster Unionists and so on, they're, they're, they're basically about ready to give up and collapse, and Britain will, uh, will, will have to enter some sort of negotiations to, to return uh, Northern Ireland uh, to the majority of Ireland, and, and there'll be a, a united Ireland, um, which is, I think, uh, clearly incorrect. But there were warnings given by the left, um, particularly by, by Militant, obviously, which is the, uh, the, the predecessor of our own organisation. So in uh, the, uh, uh, the, the Barricades Bulletin, which was produced by Militant supporters um, in Derry, um, they warned that uh, you know, these kinda, this welcoming of uh, British troops would turn to, uh, to vinegar in the mouths of these people who were celebrating it. Uh, and indeed it did. You know, people, like, um, people like Bernadette Devlin, who was a kind of leader of uh, people's democracy, this kind of more left-wing, younger... Uh, part of uh, the Civil Rights Association. She was originally one of these people who was kind of calling for like troops to be sent, you know, before it was ever kind of even touted by the British, uh, by the British state. Uh, and very quickly she had, uh, she sort of changed her position. And when she realised that uh, the sending of these soldiers, they were not really here to protect them, but they were, as uh, the militant said, here to uh, impose a solution on the on the crisis in the interests of uh, of British capitalism. Um, and uh, indeed, that's what they were there to do. So the, the ruling class at the time, so obviously this is the, the late kind of 1960s. We're entering the period of the 70s and 80s where there's these big class struggles around Europe and around the world, but particularly in Britain. Um, and the last thing I suppose the ruling class wanted was a, a kind of a, a civil war essentially breaking out on their doorstep. Um, they knew they couldn't end the violence completely. Um, so the, the, the official policy and the official remit of Operation Banner was to, uh, to contain the violence to acceptable levels, uh, which I can only assume would mean like pre-1968 kind of levels of, of violence and uh, inter-community kind of violence. Um, anyway, as I mentioned, the, uh, this was a very important period for the, for the IRA, so I'll talk about them for a little bit. But, um, so in 1969, obviously, like I said, there were this, this, these uh, unprecedented sort of sectarian attacks on the, on the uh, Catholic uh, nationalist kind of communities. Um, and the IRA was kind of really underprepared to deal with this. They were sort of stunned about what they should do. Um, in, from 1956 to 62, what remained of kind of the IRA, so the, the sort of small kind of groups of hangers-on that had, uh, I guess, continued since the days of the Irish War of Independence and so on, they, uh, they launched what they called the Border Campaign or Operation Harvest which was a, a, a completely kind of doomed attempt to you know, basically kill some police officers along the border of Northern Ireland, you know, uh, seize some arms and so on. Um, and uh, this would you know, provoke a, an uprising amongst the people, uh, amongst you know, Irish patriots, I guess, in the north of Ireland, who would then uh, you know, go on to overthrow the Northern Irish state uh, and uh, again, bring about this united Ireland that they, uh, that they were, were seeking. Um, it was a military failure. They had something like 200 so, you know, members of the volunteers of the IRA to do this. They got away with killing some people, but mostly people were kind of uh, 
stunned at the violence, and it didn't lead to any kind of uprisings or anything. Um, after this period, the IRA were kind of left questioning this military defeat about what they should do to sort of build support. Um, and uh, there was a, a section of the IRA leadership that wanted to make a turn towards politics, essentially, so to sort of put down the gun, you know, transform the organization from just a kind of secretive army uh, and a terrorist organization, essentially, um, and uh, take control of the, the political wing, you know, or use more the political wing of the IRA, which is the, the Sinn Féin party, um, to, uh, to sort of build support for United Ireland and so on. Um, however, when these kind of, uh, the, the, the riots, the Belfast riots and the, the Battle of the Bogside happened in August 1916, or 1969, rather, um, they, uh, uh, they were left wondering, there was, there was this demand that uh, the IRA are people with guns, why aren't they here to, to, to defend us essentially? And uh, from a lot of the IRA rank and file, that was the question that was coming up, you know, was why, why are we not uh, defending our people from these, uh, from these attacks? Um, and these questions, along with the, uh, the, the political question that's uh, again very sort of central to the Republican movement um, of uh, abstentionism, whether they should recognise the uh, the institutions of uh, of a partitioned Ireland as as legitimate, i.e. the the Parliament in, in Dublin and the Parliament in uh, in Belfast, um, and where they should stand candidates and so on. Over this question, over the question of like how the whether the IRA should uh, be taking up arms to defend Catholic communities, um, the IRA splits into its kind of two uh, two wings. So um, the militarists, as I, as they were kind of called at the time, um, and the uh, the sort of self defence people in favour of uh, defending Catholic communities were the, they were the pro provisional IRA. Um, so they were the ones who went on to be the kind of, I guess, the more famous IRA. They had more support uh, over the years. Uh, and then the other half became the, the officials, the uh, official IRA, um, who uh, today are incarnated as the, uh, the Workers' Party. Um, so they, they made a kind of turn towards, uh, uh, towards uh, Stalinism, essentially. And in this quest to find a political route to building support among the working class in, uh, in North of Ireland and in South the officials and uh, as the Workers' Party, they, they uh, adopted kind of Stalinist uh, politics. Um, whereas the Provisionals were an explicitly nationalist organization, they, they re rejected uh, class struggle. Um, and uh, very often they would have members who were, uh, you know, uh, explicitly kind of, you know, sectarians who you know, wanted to drive all Protestants out of Ireland and so on. Um, um, in, uh, yeah, in their sort of thing. But, um, so I saying. Uh, yeah. But after this period, so after this kind of failure, so I mean, the, the Civil Rights Association and, uh, and, and the kind of protests and so on that, that uh, existed, they had huge potential, really. Um, like I said, they initially had this kind of uh, uh, class appeal, much more than a sectarian appeal, um, and uh, in uh, very many situations, they were they were uh, they were kind of challenging state power. You know, they they had uh, taken control of small areas. Where they'd set up, uh, you know, uh, they would control essentially law and order there. Um, however, the Civil Rights Association, uh, as an organisation, it was it was devoid of, uh, of, uh, of of class ideas, despite this uh, this potential. So, they were an organisation that um, uh, had again a kind of Stalinist sort of political line, anyway. So the uh, a big sort of influential part of the Civil Rights Association, this kind of alliance, was uh, the Communist Party of Ireland and, uh, and, uh, and some sort of Republicans as well, through the Republican clubs, these more left-wing Republicans. Um, and they eventually just had this position, uh, which was expressed by uh, a guy called Dr. Johnson, that um, the, the, the Civil Rights Association and the, and the task of, uh, of Irish revolutionaries was just to gain uh, equal democratic rights for Catholics in Northern Ireland, 
Uh, and then once that was sorted out, then they would move on to the next stage, which would be to uh, unite Ireland, so on a, on a capitalist basis, to unite the North and South. And only after you know these two stages of the kind of uh, of you know uh, of achieving democratic rights and a kind of democratic revolution in Ireland, only after that would uh, would socialism be posed as a real kind of concrete question. Um, obviously, this is something that we disagree with, um, and uh, it led to the Civil Rights Association uh, essentially kind of uh, fizzling out and, and becoming irrelevant, and being unable to cut across the uh, the rising kind of sectarian division division that happened after 1969. Um, because after this period, really, um, the, uh, the, kind of, the kind of, uh, apart from uh, isolated kind of incidents, the, the sort of political trajectory and the political kind of atmosphere was, became dominated just by kind of paramilitarism and by paramilitary attacks. Large movements of people and so on, um, they kind of withdrew and they became sort of less important. Um, um, so this uh, sort of began really uh, in kind of 1970. Um, and uh, like I said, this, the Civil Rights Association became just politically frozen in this period, frozen in kind of pre-1968 kind of policies of, you know, you can't talk about socialism from the platform, you just have to talk about, you know, uh, you know these kind of equal rights and so on. And even some uh, elements of it, they, they would argue um, for, um, uh, you know, equal rights to, uh, to what like, people have in Britain, you know, they would frame it in those kind of terms that, you know, uh, it was like full British rights, full British standards was their kind of, uh, was their slogan, which obviously doesn't really appeal to people who think that uh, the British are there basically to, to, to rule over them. Um, so despite the troops being, uh, being sent in and, and some sort of concessions, so the, uh, the Royal Officer Constabulary were like disarmed, the B-Specials were abolished and so on. Um, the feeling amongst uh, you know, the majority of people who were armed, uh, on these barricades and so on, these bogside rioters um, and uh, the kind of Catholic community was that uh, nothing was, was really changing. Um, that the, the Northern Irish state was kind of still left intact, O'Neill was still Prime Minister and so on. Um, and uh, this uh, gradually became obvious as uh, the, uh, the, the army became much more a kind of a, uh, less viewed as a kind of neutral organization there to protect them, but as, uh, as a, a hostile uh, occupying force. Uh, and indeed, they gradually came to behave like that as well. Um, so a standout kind of event um, from early 1970s on the 31st of March 1970, when uh, again, an orange parade is planned through uh, the town of Ballymurphy, which is kind of just around Belfast really, um, and actually provokes Catholic residents um, and uh, the British Army, they, they respond, they're in this kind of policing role as part of Operation Banner. They try to contain the crowds, contain the rioters, um, and uh, it leads to kind of clashes between them and uh, people being, being shot at by the British Army, of course. Um, and around this time, the provisionals have, uh, have kind of emerged as a, as a group, and they, they, uh, they start to plan their kind of campaign against the British Army in Ireland. Um, so it's kind of the ending of, uh, of what was kind of thought of as this kind of truce between uh, Catholic communities and the army, this idea that you know, they're, they, they'll just kind of uh, treat each other with uh, a certain amount of kind of cold uh, respect. Um, but, uh, yeah, where are we? My other notes here. Um, What I was going to talk about there. Anyway, um, so yeah, in uh, 1970. So um, 
there was also a growth uh, in this time. So around this time, the uh, the kind of uh, the rabid kind of reactionary kind of uh, like loyalist kind of supreme, supremist uh, kind of uh, groups around uh, Ian Paisley, you know, we were, were calling for um, a campaign against the IRA, um, a big campaign, uh, and uh, for like a people's militia and so on. Um, and again, to further prove to uh, like a lot of Catholic kind of residents that uh, the uh, the British Army and the kind of the Orange uh, sort of state, as it was called, was not really on their side and was not going to act as a neutral body. Um, uh, in 1970, the, the UDR was formed, and I think this is often overlooked as a significant kind of thing. So, a large kind of uh, Protestant loyalist paramilitary group exists at the time called the UDA, so the Ulster Defence Association. Um, so it doesn't take much uh, much thinking to see the connection between the Ulster Defence Association and the and the the section of the British Army, the Ulster Defence Regiment, um, which became one of which historically is one of the uh, the largest uh, 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 regiments of the British Army ever formed. Originally, basically, it was this kind of people's militia. It was a part-time organisation. People were allowed to participate with their own arms and so on. Um, and uh, many Protestants obviously joined it uh, as this idea that we need to, to defend themselves against the IRA and also to, to join this campaign to destroy the IRA. Um, and um, yes, in uh, June 1970, which is when the, uh, the it's when the Provisionals kind of make their first big appearance uh, as these kind of defenders of kind of the Catholic community. So it's called the Battle of St Matthew. So it happened in Belfast in the Short Strand area, which is not far from where I grew up. Um, where again, there was a kind of an orange march uh, very close to this kind of Catholic area, led to sort of clashes and riots. Um, and there was a, 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 you know, groups of kind of armed um, uh, loyalists turned up. Um, and it was the provisionals, they uh, were engaged in a gun battle with them and with the elements of the police and the army as well um, to, uh, to defend this kind of small area from, again, what they thought was going to be an ensuing kind of pogrom and, uh, and sort of sectarian slaughter of people there. Um, and this leads essentially to one of the big provocative actions that would really turn the population against the, against the army, um, which was the, uh, the Falls Road curfew. So again, a kind of famous uh, event in the history of the Troubles. So uh, it was an enforced curfew, so if people were, were out after this time, they were arrested. And there were very many house searches, and uh, there were basically house searches. So it was, it was portrayed as like an anti-IRA operation, so trying to seize arms, trying to find members of the IRA um, hiding in, uh, in areas of the Falls Road. Um, and the particularly brutal methods were employed. People's houses were completely turned over. You know, windows smashed in, doors kicked in, um, furniture just completely ripped apart, uh, floorboards ripped up. Um, people's houses were uh, were completely uh, completely turned over, really. Um, and uh, this obviously turned people towards the IRA. So it, it you know there was a, a, a leader of the Belfast Brigade of the IRA at the time said you know they they could barely contain the amount of people that were ready to join. Um, they said they could fill the Falls Road Park with uh, with volunteers, which is like a kind of I don't know, like a kilometre square of people, you know. Um, and uh, as around this time as well at the IRA campaign, they make this turn towards uh, individual sort of terroristic methods. So they abduct, they famously abduct uh, two off-duty soldiers and uh, kind of murder them um, in the hills above Belfast. Um, and in response to the kind of this, uh, this uh, campaign from, uh, from the uh, divisional IRA, in 1971, um, Operation uh, Demetrius was planned, which is an operation by the British Army to, uh, to supposedly capture suspected IRA members uh, and to, to intern them, so to imprison them without trial. So this is the beginning of, of internment, which again became a big massive kind of a, a grievance in Northern Ireland. 
Um, it was uh, unprecedented. And tournament had been used before in both the south and the north of Ireland. This was uh, unprecedented because it was a unilateral action by the British, by the British government to, to announce this internment. Um, originally, the operation was planned to be started on August 10th. Um, but just to give you an example of the, the kind of uh, the, the, the atmosphere at the time, it was brought a day forward because um, there was unrest in Belfast uh, due to the, the, the army killing a man called uh, Harry Thornton, who was uh, a completely innocent man. He was driving a delivery van uh, through Belfast, which backfired. Um, a local, uh, nearby kind of group of British army soldiers immediately turned on the van and, and shot it up. Um, Thornton, as I said, was killed, um, and his, uh, his passenger was shocked and was dragged out of the uh, um, out of the vehicle and was taken to a, a local RUC station where he was uh, where he was beaten and tortured. Um, uh, so again, in the 1970s, so after this kind of failure of this kind of uh, this civil rights kind of movement, uh, it's in the 1970s and 80s when this when the real kind of uh, 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 sort of darkest periods of the troubles begin. There's this descent into sectarian violence um, and into particularly brutal methods of repression. So as I said, in Operation Demetrius, 342 people were taken to makeshift. Uh, internment camps. Um, most of them, the, the intelligence was rubbish, most of them were not IRA members and even many of them who were, were like 17, 18 year old, you know, like young kids and stuff like that who had, you know, said they joined the IRA or something like that. And maybe they had, but they weren't trained in the use of weapons, they weren't going and planting bombs and stuff like that. They were just joining this organisation which they thought was going to help them defend their neighbourhood from attacks. Um, and uh, particularly infamously, um, 14 were selected for, uh, for uh, what was then called deep interrogation, which obviously bears resemblance to uh, what we now call enhanced interrogation techniques. So these were the, uh, this is just again a particular aside in kind of method, uh, uh, or aside uh, in, the, in this kind of story here, but um, these methods of torture and interrogation, which were developed by the British Army, they're called the, the, five, um, uh, the five techniques. So hooding, uh, sensory deprivation, stress positions, things like that. Um, you know, these were used on these 14 men who were you know, left permanently damaged from, these, uh, from these, this experience. Um, and just an example really of the kind of colonial methods and innovations that the British kind of army were doing at this time and were, were making at this time, um, uh, which essentially gave birth to modern torture. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the British government was sued by the European Court of Human Rights in the 1970s over the use of these methods, uh, which they successfully defended in court. Um, as being defined as not, as not being torture. So there's the European Union to the rescue again. Um, so obviously the internment leads to mass opposition uh, and real kind of mass opposition. The masses do take part again this time. So there are strikes, there are boycotts, uh, there's rent strikes, there's non-payment of taxes um, and the state is basically unable to cope with these kind of things. Um, Unfortunately, trade union and kind of like labour movement leaders are basically silent over the whole thing. They see Operation Demetrius and internment as just like a, a policing action against uh, against Republicans against the IRA. They take the, they take it at face value, and uh, it means that the the movement just further descends into into sectarian violence and more members joining the uh, the provisional IRA. Uh, even the official IRA, which uh, formerly didn't condone the terroristic methods of the provisionals, they began to, they had to begin, eventually felt the need to kind of ip the provisionals and plant bombs and kill soldiers and so on because they could feel their, uh, their support kind of draining away because they were, they were seen as the kind of do-nothing half of the IRA. Um, but, um, yeah. So from, um, from then onward, really, um, in the later kind of 1970s is when um, the... Uh, uh, and, and in the kind of 1980s, it's when this, uh, this campaign of bombings and shootings and so on 
uh, really comes into its own and the provisional IRA become, become extremely proficient at it. They become funded from abroad, they get weapons sent to them by, uh, by Libya and so on. Um, and they, became, they become absolutely kind of committed to this military, uh, military uh, strategy of we'll just basically bring the British army to its knees and then they'll, uh, they'll withdraw and then you know, Northern, Ireland, Northern Ireland will be returned to the rest of Ireland. Uh, um, and uh, which ultimately does not succeed. Um, but in this period, like the 70s and 80s, like I said, some of the darkest kind of moments and uh, the, the ugliest kind of uh, uh, results of this individual terroristic kind of strategy. So, you know, uh, just shootings of kind of innocent people, individual soldiers and policemen. Uh, most secondly, I think, uh, is, is this is the kind of beginning of the, of the pub bombings. So I don't know if you can imagine a more um, uh, obvious direct attack on just ordinary working people than to place a bomb uh, in a pub. Um, and this happened uh, you know, several times, you know, um, both loyalist and, uh, and uh, Republican kind of paramilitaries. Um, in the 1980s, with the election of Margaret Thatcher, um, the, the British Army's kind of policy moves from containment to a more aggressive militaristic policy of trying to militarily defeat the IRA. Um, and uh, aggressive policies which lead to, uh, uh, for example, the hunger strikes which is a big significant uh, uh, element or, or moment in the, in the development of, of Sinn Féin and of, of, of the provisional IRA. Because to this point, you know, Jerry Adams has just become kind of leader uh, of Sinn Féin and the IRA around this time. He sees the, from, the, uh, the, from the hunger strikes, which were essentially uh, a recategorization of Republican prisoners from kind of political prisoners and, uh, and kind of prisoners of war essentially, to being categorized as just mere criminals, just, you know, uh, you know their, their bombings and so on, and their kind of gun running and stuff, they were just treated as, uh, as criminals. Um, so they, uh, they went on a hunger strike against uh, this and, and demanded they were treated as, as, as prisoners of war, that the British, uh, the British government recognized uh, the, the support and the legitimacy that the provisional IRA had, um, and they were engaged in a war with them. Um, but this led to a, 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 a kind of mass um, uh, campaign of public support, you know, people like Bobby Sands, the kind of, you know, the most famous hunger strikers who became elected um, uh, as an MP when he was on hunger strike uh, and who uh, eventually uh, died on hunger strike. You know, they became world famous kind of figures essentially, you know, they were, they were known all around the world and, uh, and people sympathised with kind of the, the plight and the suffering of, uh, of these people and, the, and of course the, the callousness and the cruelty with which Margaret Thatcher um, uh, let them sort of starve to death. Um, and this kind of mass movement, you know, uh, Jerry Adams and the kind of Sinn Féin leadership at the time, Martin McGuess and so on, they begin to see that they can take political advantage of this. So they kind of make this almost this turn to, uh, to the kind of political path, is what they would later refer to it as, you know. Um, at the time in the 70s and 80s, uh, it was this policy of, uh, which was expressed in a, in a Sinn Féin uh, conference speech, which is, you know, the Armalite, which is a rifle in one hand and uh, the ballot in the other, and this is how we're going to like win Irish freedom, you know. Which, it's kind of, it sounds very, like a very strange uh, thing, but you know, as Marxists, when we kind of uh, study and how we understand, you know, the methods of individual terrorism um, and obviously of, of kind of uh, parliamentary and electoral like reformism, um, you know, to, superficially they seem very, very distant, and very, very far apart. But we see in the example of Sinn Féin, the original Sinn Féin and the IRA, that often they can be very closely married together, really. Uh, and indeed they were. So. Uh, there was this campaign, a continued campaign of bombings, which was eventually extended to England even in the 1970s, um, and as well as this uh, this uh, strategy of, of electoral kind of, uh, of uh, of trying to stand in elections and win elections on on mainly kind of sort of left reformist uh, kind of uh, platforms, you know. Um, 
And uh, I don't have time to talk about these other bits and pieces, but um, essentially it comes to an end, or does it, as um, the, uh, as, uh, as the uh, provisional leadership and Jerry Adamson, they begin to realize that people are exhausted of these bombing campaigns. They're tired of it. Um, Jerry Adams, uh, you know, as you know, he, he appears like a uh, you know a reasonable man, but um, he, uh, he he's responsible for or is thought to be responsible for some particularly gruesome things. Um, but he has always kind of maintained, I suppose, that you know the the IRA only fights when people want it to fight. Um, and like I said, of these these pub bombings, these kind of attacks on ordinary working people and so on. Obviously, people are disgusted by this, and they can see and they can feel that it, it seems it, it seems to happen to almost anyone, and there's no kind of safety from it. Um, so there's this, this kind of declining support really for the provisionals, and um, so they they begin to uh, by the like late in, late 1980s, so like 1986 and 1988, Jerry Adams and the provisional leadership they propose they start to propose peace talks. Again, Thatcher wants to exclude them. Um, there's protests from the kind of loyalists and so on to, to exclude Sinn Féin and, uh, and, and you know, smash Sinn Féin, exclude them from peace talks and so on. Um, and throughout the 1990s, there's a series of kind of ceasefires and so on from the provisional IRA where they, they, they agree to put down arms as long as peace talks go on. Um, and uh, this obviously ultimately results in the, the Good Friday Agreement. So a kind of rerun. Essentially, the, uh, the British ruling class for all throughout the Troubles have been trying to get some kind of compromise going whether there be some sort of power-sharing government, so i.e. the ending of kind of the unionist kind of domination of the north and trying to channel kind of uh, Catholic and uh, nationalist anger into kind of safe channels in this kind of way, essentially. So there's the Sunning Deal Agreement in the 1970s, there's the Anglo-Irish Agreement, things like that. Um, and in 1997, with the Good Friday Agreement, is the ultimate kind of uh, supposedly successful uh, attempt at doing this, which obviously set up the Northern Irish Assembly, the executive power-sharing between uh, you know, political parties representing the nationalist and the unionist uh, halves of the, of the population. Um, and uh, that essentially leads to, to Northern Ireland now. But though Good Friday was in 1997, you know, the, the saga of kind of uh, sectarian division, it doesn't end there, it really continues, you know. Um, like I said, it wasn't until 2007 that Operation Banner was officially over. Um, and in 2006, you know, the assembly collapsed again. And since then, it's been a series of kind of collapses and, and kind of restarts of the assembly under the executive. Um, it's never really, it never really worked. And it's because, you know, it, it doesn't really represent the solution to the problem. It just represents trying to kind of sort of uh, put a sticking plaster on what is a kind of deep, uh, deeply kind of reactionary and divided situation. Um, in which, with a lack of kind of um, a, uh, a kind of class conscious and, uh, and sort of uh, principled and revolutionary left, um, all kinds of dark and uh, horrible forces will flow into kind of uh, the vacuum left behind, uh, created by people's kind of anger um, at how they're treated um, and, uh, uh, and by you know, feelings of, of kind of powerlessness and so on. Um, so I guess I, to conclude then, um, obviously I have to say, but I think that's what we, what we have to build in Northern Ireland, you know. Although, when you look back on the Troubles, uh, it can be easy to become very, very cynical, I think. And to think that um, it's a place dominated by violence, it's still very, very haunted by the kind of past, people don't trust each other and so on. But the, as Marxists, we do have you know, faith in the, in the working class, uh, as a class that um, you know, ultimately uh, does recognise its own interests, that this kind of sectarian killing is, is, is something used by the ruling class to lord over the working class. 
Um, and it's uh, through creating a, a, a kind of a mass, kind of revolutionary and Marxist uh, organization um, that which, you know, uh, that can lead the working class in, in, in Ireland, north and south, that uh, we can uh, offer a way out of this impasse uh, and a real kind of a, a real kind of future to the to the lost uh, generations uh, that uh, exist in Northern Ireland. Thank you for tuning in to Marxist Voice, brought to you by Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. Subscribe or download the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit www.socialist.net for all the latest news, analysis and Marxist ideas.